This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. Uh, today I'm delighted to be joined by four guests, which actually for me is a record uh, with these podcasts. Uh, Dr. Jason Andrews is the senior author of a paper entitled A Rapid Pharmacogenomic Assay to Detect NAT2 Polymorphisms and Guide to Isonized Dosing or Chiboxis Treatment. Drs. Paolo Denti and Elisa Inicius uh, are the authors of a paper entitled A Semi-Mechanistic Model of Bactericidal Activity of High-Dose Isoniazid Against Multidrug-Resistant Tuberculosis, Results from a Randomized Clinical Trial. And Dr. Neil Schluger, uh, who wrote an editorial on the two papers, and all of these papers are in, this, uh, in the December edition of the Blue Journal. Dr. Andrews is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford University in California. Dr. Denti, uh, an Associate Professor of Pharmacometrics at the University of Cape Town. Uh, Dr. Nietzsche's, uh, an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore. And Dr. Schluger is the Chair of the Department of Medicine at the New York Medical School at Valhalla. So before we start the discussion of the two papers, uh, I'd like to ask several general questions about isoniazid. Neil, how long has isoniazid been the backbone of tuberculosis treatment? What is the current recommended dose and how common is resistance and toxicity? Isoniazid is one of the oldest anti-tuberculosis drugs that we have. It came into the armamentarium in the 1950s uh, through really pioneering work by a number of scientists, uh, including Walsh McDermott, Carl Marsenheim, Irving Selikoff, and Edward Robichek. Uh, who won the Lasco Prize for their work developing isoniazid. And really, since the mid-1950s, it's been a mainstay of the treatment of tuberculosis uh, all over the world. Uh, it's still one of the cornerstones of the regimen that we use for drug-susceptible TB, really everywhere in the world. And uh, it's used uh, in some regimens for multidrug-resistant TB uh, as well at higher doses than we would usually give it for drug susceptible TB. So the usual dose of isoniazid would be 300 milligrams a day. That's the standard dose for most adults. And sometimes, as I said, at higher doses uh, in regimens for drug resistant TB. So it's really one of the oldest drugs we have, but we still rely on it uh, quite a bit. And uh, as I said, I dare to say that probably every, nearly every patient in the world diagnosed with a, a case of TB right now uh, is started on a regimen that includes isoniazid. The World Health Organization uh, estimates that at the moment about 14% of isolates of mycobacterium tuberculosis are resistant to isoniazid. So this is a growing concern around the world, but that still means that the vast majority of people with TB uh, will be treated with isoniazid. And how is um, uh, isoniazid metabolized? And do individual differences in drug metabolism have an impact on its efficacy and toxicity? So isoniazid is an interesting molecule. It's actually a pro-drug, uh, meaning that uh, it has to undergo a bit of uh, metabolism or alteration uh, after ingestion to get it into its active form. So 
isoniazid uh, is ingested and then it's activated by a protein called CATG, which is a catalase peroxidase. It's encoded for by the CATG gene. And then that initial activation puts it into an active form. INH uh, isoniazid then interacts with another molecule, NADH, um, and forms a complex with a protein called INHA. INHA is an enzyme that's very important uh, in the synthesis of mycolic acids, which are a critical portion of the cell wall of TB. When the activated form of isoniazid interacts with INHA, it prevents INHA from catalyzing the reaction it needs to, to catalyze in order to synthesize these mycolic acids. And so MTB can't synthesize those acids and that's how it's toxic to the cell. Uh, that's how it becomes active now. How it's metabolized for excretion depends on another protein called uh, NAT2, N-acetyltransferase type 2, and that's an enzyme that's really important to metabolizing the drug and eventually eliminating it. The activity of NAT2, whether you're a slow acetylator or a fast acetylator, seems to have a lot to do with the levels of isoniazid that people will have in their bloodstream and how long the isoniazid will last uh, in their bloodstream. And so for a long time, people have been interested in individual differences in NAT2 activity, whether people are fast or slow acetylators, as perhaps being very important determinants of both the activity and the toxicity of isoniazid. Will you have enough isoniazid in your bloodstream so that you can get the activity against mycobacterium tuberculosis that you need? But will you have uh, a level that's also safe enough to protect you against the toxicity of isoniazid, which is something we worry about a lot in clinical medicine, that the major toxicity of isoniazid is liver damage, hepatotoxicity, and that really is the toxicity we worry about the most. When we saw these two papers um, submitted to the Blue Journal, we thought that they were really bringing a modern understanding of genetics and pharmacodynamics to our understanding of isoniazid metabolism, and, and that's where we're very, very interested in, in uh, publishing them. And I think they really address this question of the relationship between metabolism, drug efficacy, and side effects. Thanks, Neil. Let's move to the discussion of the two papers. Jason, can I start with you? What were the objectives of your study? Yeah, we, so we had a couple of objectives. First, as Neil mentioned, there have been dozens of studies showing that acetylator status MAT2 acetylator status predicts toxicities and treatment responses with INH, but without having a rapid diagnostic, there wasn't really much that could easily be done about this for patients. So our first goal in our study was to create a point of care assay that could allow for improved dosing. And as we got into it and looked at the problem further, we, we recognized that a major challenge was that point of care tests measure single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. But that does not directly tell you what you need to know in terms of how those SNPs fall across the pair of chromosomes and determine an individual's haplotype and genotype. A system had been previously developed um, and widely used, but it left out a key SNP in NAT2 that's very important in African populations. And it was developed in an earlier time before we had this massive expansion of human genomic data. So our goal is to develop this assay, but then we had the secondary goal, which was to come up with a reliable system to predict acetylation status from as few SNPs as possible that would help get us towards a point-of-care test. So what is the usual breakdown of rapid, intermediate, and slow acetylators between patients? And does this vary based on ethnic background? 
Yeah, so globally, about 20% of the population are rapid acetylators. About 40% of the population are intermediate acetylators, and the remaining 40% are slow acetylators, but it does vary substantially by region. In East Asian populations, for example, about 40% of, of people are rapid acetylators. And so in that, in that context, you'd be concerned about underdosing of isoniazid because people are metabolizing it more quickly. Uh, by contrast, in South Asian and European populations, rat rapid acetylation is less common, um, but you have about 60% of the population as slow acetylators. So in that case, you're not metabolizing the drug as quickly and you worry about high levels and toxicities. I think what's, what's important to keep in mind is these aren't kind of rare phenotypes that we see. And in all regions of the world, less than half the population are the intermediate acetylators in whom standard doses are probably right. So really there's gains to be made in almost everywhere. Now, what was your methodology uh, and what were the primary findings of your study? So we first collected globally representative human genomic data and we trained machine learning algorithms to predict acetylator status from unfazed SNP data, the type of data that would be coming out of a point of care test. We found that by using five SNPs, we were able to achieve 100% accuracy and out of sample prediction of acetylator genotype. We then took those five SNPs and we conducted a pharmacokinetic study in active TB patients uh, with colleagues in Brazil and we found that by using those five SNPs with our algorithm, we could accurately predict individuals' isoniazid clearance. We then went on and we developed PCR-based molecular beacon assays to amplify key parts of the NAT2 gene and to detect those SNPs all in a single multiplex assay. Once we did that, we transferred the assay over to the GeneXpert platform using these customizable flexible cartridges that Cephia, the maker of GeneXpert, provided us. And these cartridges are great because they allow you to automate the assay. So you can put in a couple of drops of blood, go through automated DNA extraction, amplification, detection of SNPs and reporting, and get a full result out in about two and a half hours. So in this paper, we showed the development and pilot validation of an automated assay for NAT2 genotyping. So is this assay cost-effective and it, is it ready for prime time wherever GeneXpert is available? Those are two very good questions. So in, in terms of cost-effectiveness, we actually looked at that question first and we developed and published a model on it last year where we looked at whether pharmacogenomic testing and guided TB therapy would be cost-effective in high TB burden settings. We specifically looked in Brazil, South Africa, and India and we look to see whether by reducing toxicities and, and improving treatment response, as has been shown in those observational studies and in one randomized trial, whether that would be a cost-effective undertaking. And in our, in our cost-effectiveness model, we found that it would be indeed highly cost-effective by common international benchmarks if the cost of the diagnostic could be in the range of a gene expert test. In terms of whether it's ready for prime time, the assay is not a commercial product right now. It's still in development. It's um, a product that's been developed in our laboratory and, and tested in, in patient samples in our laboratory. We, we moved the assay to the GeneXpert platform because it's so widely available in high TB burden countries and specifically clinical settings where TB is diagnosed, but the assay needs to be moved out to those settings and tested. Thus far, we've tested the assay using venous blood finding that we can get good results with 25 or 50 microliters, which is just a drop or two of blood. But we'd also like to look at non-invasive samples, so things like uh, finger stick capillary blood 
oral swabs, other kind of approaches that would lend towards its use in clinics and at the point of care. Thanks, Jason. Let's now move on to the other related study. Paolo, what were the objectives of your study? Thanks, John. So the objective of our study was to determine what is the right dose of isoniazid that should be used against drug-resistant tuberculosis. And more specifically, we looked at a specific mutation that TB bugs can acquire, which is called INHA, which confers a, a low level of, uh, of resistance, which can overcome with higher doses. And in fact, uh, WHO in the, uh, in the regimen for uh, multi-drug resistant TB already advises to use higher uh, doses of isoniazid, but it's never been uh, determined accurately what is the right dose that should be used uh, against these uh, mutated bugs. So what we set off to do was to actually perform a, almost a dose-finding study uh, where several patients were enrolled in an early bactericidal activity study. So these are patients that, as an exception, get treated in monotherapy with one drug only, in this case, as an ISID. And the study had four arms, and we looked at a control arm with drug-sensitive tuberculosis, where the patients were treated at the current dose of five milligrams per kilograms. And then there were three arms where the patients were carrying uh, drug-resistant bugs, and these were treated uh, at five, 10, and 15 milligrams per kilograms uh, for seven days. Uh, there was a preliminary analysis of this data that found that there was a relationship between the dose and uh, the level of bacterial kill achieved in the different patients. But this data was quite difficult to interpret because uh, markers of bacterial load in tuberculosis are, are extremely noisy. Uh, they are collected from a sputum and then the bacteria are grown and this is not uh, very reproducible. So the data was very noisy and the analysis was performed on a per arm basis. So the, the pre preliminary analysis looked at dose versus outcome. But as uh, Jason just explained to us, uh, patients have a very variable concentration of isoniazid depending on their genotype. So across the three arms with three different doses, the actual concentrations of isoniazid were very different. Some of the patients receiving 15 milligrams per kilogram had lower concentration than some of those receiving only five. So what we set off to do was to use a more complex methodology to try and uh, describe with a modeling approach the relationship between the dose, the concentrations of isoniazid, and then the kill, and then use this model to ask the question, how should we treat these patients? What dose should they receive? And should this dose be different according to the NAD2-acetylator status, which predicts how well uh, these patients will metabolize isoniazid? Okay, so what was your methodology with this study and, and your primary findings? So as I said, what we set off to do is to use a modeling approach. So what we tried to do is to include all the data, both the drug concentration data and the bacterial load data, and use a mathematical model to try and describe mechanistically uh, how the drug is absorbed in the body and is eliminated. And then we try to include in this model predictors uh, that help us explain why different patients uh, clear drugs differently. And in fact, we found, we confirmed that using NAD2-acetylator would really explain why some patients clear isoniazid faster than others and have different concentrations. And this constituted the first part of the model, which is the pharmacokinetics. The second part was to relate these concentrations to the drop in bacterial load. So as you treat the patients and you collect sputum, you see that the bacterial load goes down, but it does so in a very noisy and uneven way. 
so instead of just looking at the drop between baseline and day seven, the last day of the study, we could characterize with the model the entire curve uh, and really try to extract the signal from, from the noise. And uh, in each patient, we use the individual concentrations that were observed in that patient to try and relate the concentration level to the drop in bacteria in the patient. So as opposed to look at those and outcome and have a black box in between, we try to use mathematics and statistics to really populate that black box and uh, have a more mechanistic and more insightful approach. And what we found is that we managed to identify a, a concentration hill relationship. And while for drug sensitive patients, the different levels of concentration didn't matter as much, meaning that patients that were rapid, intermediate or slow acetylators managed to kill the sensitive bugs in a similar way. We found that for the mutated bugs, the ones that were resistant, there was quite a difference in the rate of kill that they achieved, whether they were fast intermediate or slow acetylators. So our main finding really, once we use the model for simulations, is that the model predicted that for patients that are slow acetylators, the current dose of 10 milligram per kilograms is enough. Whereas if patients metabolize isonized faster, they may need higher concentrations like 15 milligram per kilogram or even 20. So this ties well with you know, what Jason just presented because if we had an available test that could tell us at the beginning of treatment how these patients are expected to handle the drug, we could really tailor, tailor the dose to them. Elisa, are there any limitations to this modeling? There's three key limitations in this study. Um, as Paolo mentioned, uh, this is an early bactericidal activity or EBA study, meaning that isoniazid monotherapy is given for only seven days, um, during which intensive microbiologic and pharmacokinetic data is collected. So we're only able to say that the early bactericidal activity can be regained with adequate dosing. We're really not able to generalize these early findings to predict isoniazid potency later on in treatment. I will note, though, that some prior studies from Haiti, South Africa, India have demonstrated that high-dose isoniazid is an effective treatment for MDRTB. So, you know, that does um, uh, sort of reassure us that this will be potent later on. This was also only monotherapy, and so combination therapy was not given in the seven days. So obviously we can't fully capture the efficacy of multidrug therapy uh, based on the design of this trial. And then additionally, for any early bactericidal activity study, these early biomarkers of colony forming units and time to positivity and liquid culture are not necessarily associated with later treatment outcomes. Um, so they, they really only measure that early bactericidal activity. Um, so that's kind of, I think, the first sort of series of limitations. You know, second is that this model to predict optimal isoniazid doses for each NAT2 acetylator phenotype does not incorporate safety data. Isoniazid toxicity is usually seen within weeks to months rather than days to weeks. So we wouldn't really expect any hepatotoxicity or other toxicity signals um, after only seven days of therapy. And relatedly, this model does not incorporate any measurement of the toxic intermediate metabolites of isoniazid, which are generated by and detoxified by NAT2 acetylation. So that's sort of an important part of the NAT2 story, you know, that our trial 
was not able to explore fully. And the third kind of limitation is that we did not have complete resistance data. So we had MIC data on 54% of participants, and it's not possible to tell that all participants with INHA mutant strains uh, had identical MICs. So that would have potentially affected efficacy of these varying isoniazid doses by that to acetylator type. However, when the MIC data that we did have was incorporated into the model, it actually didn't affect the uh, power to discriminate um, effect. And we do not yet have data on isoniazid resistance, sort of higher level isoniazid resistance conferred by CAT-G mutation rather than INHA mutation, but that arm is actually enrolling currently. So we hope to have data on that soon. Thank you. Now 300 milligrams or five milligrams per kilogram is the conventional dose for isoniazid. As Paolo mentioned, 10 milligrams per kilogram is the current dose recommended by the World Health Organization for low to intermediate level isoniazid resistance. Your results suggest that even this uh, higher dose may be suboptimal for intermediate and fast acetylators. How much is known about the safety and tolerability of high doses of isoniazid? I wanted first just to kind of to briefly expand upon some of the comments Neil made about the general toxicity profile of isoniazid. So we know that 20% of patients who are on isoniazid for latent or active TB at standard dosing will experience some elevation in liver transaminases, and 2% will actually go on to develop severe drug-induced liver injury, a further subset develop acute liver failure. And this risk of drug-induced liver injury is sort of additive between the different drugs used to treat uh, drug-sensitive TB. So it has sort of a baseline risk for isoniazid that increases with the addition of rifampicin, increases further with the addition of pyrazinamide. And we know from many studies, as, as Jason mentioned, that there is a, a fairly consistent association between slow acetylator status and hepatotoxicity, but this risk isn't absolute. So not everyone that is a slow acetylator will develop toxicity and not everybody that develops toxicity on isoniazid is found to be a slow acetylator. But nonetheless, this relationship between slow acetylation and hepatotoxicity does seem to persist across multiple studies, multiple populations around the world. And one meta-analysis in particular found that the overall odds ratio of drug-induced liver injury among slow acetylators was about 3.15. There are very few studies in the literature that have sought to dose reduce from standard dosing based on slow acetylator status. There's one in Japan, which is often cited, where patients were randomized to receive either standard dosing or tailored pharmacogenetics-based dosing, uh, slow acetylators were dose, dosed down to you know, about 100 to 150, depending on their weight, rather than the standard 300. And they found that the slow acetylators who received tailored therapy had zero cases of drug-induced liver injury, whereas in the standard of care arm, there was actually very high rates of drug-induced liver injury, about 70%. And this dose reduction didn't seem to confer any risk of worse treatment outcomes. So they had sort of identical rates of culture negativity at eight weeks. And then just the one other thing I want to kind of mention is that slow acetylators have increased concentrations of not only the, the parent drug, but these intermediate metabolites, hydrazine and acetylhydrazine, which have been implicated in hepatotoxicity um, because they are both generated by and detoxified by NAT2 acetylation. So I mentioned all this uh, to highlight that isoniazid toxicity at standard dosing may be further mitigated by tailored dose reduction for slow acetylators. 
Um, but to your specific question about what's known uh, regarding safety and tolerability of higher doses of isoniazid, I think there's limited formal data that's available in the literature, but a few studies that sort of give us a sense of this toxicity profile. So one study out of India was a randomized control trial in which 134 patients with newly diagnosed MDRTB were given traditional background regimen plus either high dose isoniazid, uh, and that was 16 to 18 milligrams per kilogram, standard isoniazid at five milligrams per kilogram or placebo. And they found that outcomes were better in the group that received high dose isoniazid, culture conversion at three versus six months, but there was considerably more neuropathy. I will note though that in this study, they were patients were not given uh, vitamin B6 or pyridoxine when they began treatment. And I think importantly, there was no increase in hepatotoxicity in the arm that received high dose isoniazid. A study from South Africa, which was a retrospective analysis of patients who received high dose isoniazid in this study, it was 10 milligrams per kilogram, found that overall, again, treatment outcomes were, were better. Um, all patients were on pyridoxine in this study and no major side effects on treatment were noted in the medical chart. So it was not a study that was specifically looking at toxicity or safety, um, but there didn't seem to be sort of major signals in this retrospective chart review. Finally, the STREAM trial, which was comparing a short course MDRTB treatment to the standard long course, um, did uh, have weight-based uh, isoniazid dosing of 300, 400, or 500 milligrams, which corresponds to a dose of about nine to 12 milligrams per kilogram. So not quite as high as we were exploring in this study, but on the higher end. And they did find in this study that there were more grade three ALT elevations in the short course arm, but I'll note as a very important sort of caveat that there were many differences in the drugs that were administered between these two arms and some of the other drugs in the short course uh, regimen could have contributed to this excess hepatotoxicity risk. So, so I think in summary, the, the data about the safety profile of hydrocesonizid is limited, but what the data we do have suggests that hepatotoxicity may not be excessive and that the risk of peripheral neuropathy, you know, could potentially be mitigated by co-administration of pyridoxine. Thank you. Now, Neil, can I come back to you to, to help put the significance of these two studies into the clinical context? Sure. Well, I think Paolo and uh, Elisa's study really refines our understanding of the relationship between isoniazid dose acetylator status and clinical activity of the drug, particularly in the face of INHA mutations, which are an important and common mechanism for resistance to isoniazid. So I, I think this study really refines our understanding of those very complicated interactions and provides extremely useful information about how uh, higher doses of isoniazid can be used uh, more effectively and we hope more safely. And I think Jason's study in a way points to an ability to act on that information by accurately, rapidly, and relatively simply being able to predict acetylator status. So I think these two studies taken together really point towards a future where we can use much more sophisticated information about isoniazid and its action in a way that will allow us to use this drug most effectively and most safely in a large number of patients. Now, personalized medicine has transformed treatment for other diseases. Is TB therapy now ready to move from the 
programmatic approach to an individualized one? Well, that's, that's a great question, and, and I hope that the answer is yes. I mean, tuberculosis is, is an example, I, I think maybe the prime example of a programmatic approach to medicine. Most patients are, are treated uh, on a programmatic basis. That is to say, uh, the National TB Treatment Program in any given country will say, okay, based on our understanding of the current epidemiology of TB and the current patterns of drug resistance uh, in our country, uh, this is the way we think essentially all TB patients should be treated. And a lot of that approach is, is driven, I think, by the fact that a lot of TB occurs in, in resource-constrained settings, and there's always been a feeling that, in a sense, we can't afford to use a more sophisticated approach to treat TB patients. I think the challenge to that way of thinking is demonstrated really by the data. If you look at trends in TB epidemiology over a 20-year period, it's hard to say that we've made a great deal of progress in eliminating TB around the world. And I think it is time for the TB community to, to figure out how to employ more modern, sophisticated ways of diagnosing TB, of treating TB, uh, of all those things. Uh, and that really will involve, I think, a more personalized approach. Um, I think this is well within our grasp. The TB community, I think, has been eager to adapt more sophisticated tools, the very rapid uptake of gene expert around the world, uh, you know, replacing AFB smear, uh, I think is evidence that the TB community um, wants to use these tools, can use these tools, uh, and is ready to use these tools. Before we finish, uh, are there any final comments about either of these two studies? Jason, can I start with you? Sure, John. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to just kind of echo Neil and maybe elaborate a bit looking at this from a more historical perspective, I think it's worth stepping back and recognizing that the, the advent of effective antibiotic regimens for TB was one of the most impactful scientific and public health advances in history. It's without exaggeration saved millions of lives. It's dramatically reduced TB mortality. It's available almost everywhere in the world um, the same way, the same doses, the same antibiotics. And that really isn't, that's an incredible achievement. I think that rolling out TB therapy in a standardized way probably helped us get there faster from a public health perspective. And I think that that was a very sensible thing to do. But I also think we're at a stage now where progress has stalled a bit for drug susceptible TB in terms of additional improvements with our regimens. We really have been unchanged for decades. And we are recognizing that we can do better than this one size fits all, same dose, same duration for every case approach that we have been using for decades. We're, we're seeing new studies, including those of my colleagues here on the call that are testing that older paradigm. And we're really just beginning to develop the kind of tools and gather the data that would allow us to actually improve outcomes by individualizing therapy. So putting on my clinician hat for a moment, I'm personally very excited and encouraged by the direction in which we're moving towards individualizing and improving TB therapy. Eliza? You know, I think unlike a lot of the gene drug pairs out there, the association between NAT2 acetylator status and isonized exposure is a particularly tight one with NAT2 explaining over you know, 80% of the variability that's seen in isonized concentrations. In contrast, you know, therapeutic drug monitoring, which is the other means by which we could customize TB drug dosing, my personal opinion is that it's unlikely to permit tailored dosing in a clinically meaningful timeframe. So I was thrilled to see this study from Jason and his colleagues 
uh, about sort of true point of care, not to acetylator status testing. Uh, and I'm very optimistic about the potential for customized isoniazid dosing uh, and its potential to improve patient outcomes uh, for patients on isoniazid for any indication. I will just say, I think there is certainly room to improve for drug susceptible TB in terms of optimizing isoniazid dosing. But in my estimate, the, the biggest impact that these technologies may have is on treatment of drug-resistant TB, as Paolo and I have talked about in our study, as well as for the treatment of TB meningitis, you know, when you really need to uh, ensure that exposures, particularly in the CSF, are, are optimal. And I think a final kind of piece of this, this puzzle, which hopefully we'll better understand in the, the months and years to come, is, is how this uh, type of diagnostic test, how this type of, of data is, is perceived by TB clinicians around the world and, and how that can be integrated into their you know, daily workflow and their approach to each individual patient. Hello, the last word goes to you. Thanks, John. So actually, I should have done it as a first thing, but I would like to acknowledge the PhD student in my lab that worked on this because Elisa and I kept saying, oh, we did this, we did this. But actually the PhD student did most of the work. Her name is Kamunkwala Gausi. She's from Malawi. And funny fact, her name, uh, Kamunkwala, means medicine in Chichewa. So I guess she was predestined to work in, in pharmacology. I always joke with her. But uh, other than that, I'd just like to make a pitch for pharmacometrics and for modelers, meaning that, you know, as you may have noticed, we use, you know, we are pretty nerdy, we use very nerdy jargon, like semi-mechanistic, but I really think that modeling really helped extract as much as possible out of this data, because the, the, the raw data itself was extremely noisy. One could see a trend that, you know, the colony forming unit was going down because the bugs were, were being killed. The time to positivity in liquid culture was, you know, getting a bit longer because the bacterial load was lower. But man, that was like a pretty scary looking plot. So it was really, really difficult to tease out this relationship between those concentration and in there the contribution of NAD2 genotype and the bacterial load going down. So I really think there is a lot of synergy that can be had between nerdy modelers and good clinical trials to extract, you know, more and more out of this data and really inform how to improve treatment, especially, you know, individualization of treatment, as we are suggesting here. So I'd like to thank Drs. Andrews, Denti, Nietzsche, and Schluger for this discussion. To the listener, to read the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available and have a great day. Bye.